when it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. This podcast contains explicit language. And boom, the editor will ma- magically take us somewhere else. Also, the editor will go back and fix that. No, I think, I think we live in the real, man. I think we live in the real. We'll be right back. We're somewhere right now. We are floating in space. I don't know about <laughs> the that. The editor show, needs man. to help us. Bring us back, editor. So that happened. This week, the shocking murder of two television journalists in Virginia forced us to confront once again the fact that the only thing America seems to be good at producing anymore are mass shooting tragedies. We're joined by Connecticut Senator Chris Murphy to find out if we finally reached the point where we might courageously attempt to solve this problem. Meanwhile, reality television mogul Donald Trump seems to be doing everything he can to alienate every last Latino voter in the country. But will his flamboyant hostility accrue to other members of his own party or the eventual Republican nominee? Joining us to answer this question is NPR's Latino USA digital media director, Julio Ricardo Varela. Finally, as Joe Biden mulls getting into the 2016 race, he's taking meetings with Massachusetts Senator Elizabeth Warren. But we're going to take a trip back to 2005 and take a look at an early meeting between Biden and Warren where they fought over a bankruptcy bill that would change the game for Main Street. Plus, we're going to talk about this week's crazy stock market susurrations and the battle to defend ancient culture from ISIS. I'm Jason Lincolns with Huffington Post reporters Akbar Ahmed, Zach Carter, Arthur Delaney, Elise Foley, and Ali Watkins. And here's what happened first. Hey, everybody. Welcome to So That Happened. We have a really, I would say, exquisite show today, a show that will help us get through what was kind of a rough news week. Joining me, as always, well, not as always, but most of the time. <laughs> <laughs> I'm here. I'm Zach Carter, senior political economy reporter right. for The Huffington Post. And I'm Arthur Delaney. I have a less pretentious title. Yep. Um, and you're a less pretentious person. I'm I'm Jason Lincolns. I live in the clouds. So, um, how's everyone doing this week? Oh, the stock any, market on Monday. Any good stuff this week? Any good things to report? Just like even if it's just like you took your dog for a walk and it was nice. Certainly not. Let's you know. Let's get straight into the crap. Yeah, it was. It was, it was a dog shit week. Let's just let's ah, talk about it. It was kind of a dog shit week. I will say. Um, I'll do. Start with I. Uh, I saw I saw a show this weekend. Um, my friend Adrian came to town with a show called One in the Chamber. It was a very humane look at guns, the people who own guns, the people who are affected by gun tragedies. Very humane, so well done, so well acted. And I was like kind of riding a high of like getting to this like kind of humane place, a, a well done drama about this issue that I felt treated people decently, had decent things to say. And then this week, it like the this the, the most recent mass shooting just kind of like ripped open the wound all over again. It was, it was you know, uh, it was it was weird having, ha- going from the feeling where like a piece of theater can do what a theater does and knit up your soul 
And then like the world comes and says, fuck you. I'm ripping that bandage yes. back off. Reality is worse than art, it turns out. Yeah, uh, it, was, it was terrible. Sucks. It was terrible. I'm going to I'm, I'm really, I'm gonna talk to her to see what it's like to do that show in a week where there's been like a real like news grabbing gun tragedy. But you know, other things that aren't real make people feel good and bad in different ways. And one of those things is the stock market. Which was like, at the beginning of the week, it was like, Everyone was like orgasming over what the stock market was. It was Armageddon. Everyone was tearing their hair out with orgasm. Right. No, it was treated with significance because we have this phony baloney thing where we all pretend that it's some kind of proxy for American well being, which it is not. No, it well, I mean, it was like, okay, uh, I arrow no pointed sunshine, (laughs) arrow pointed ground. Must worry. It was. I, I was like struck by the fact that like the susurrations of the stock market are exactly. It must have been what it was like back when mankind was first gaining sentience, and like every time the sun went down, it was like, "What the fuck is it over? Is it all over? Let's huddle. Are you still warm? It's all over, man. It's all over." And then the sun comes back up. And it's like we're spared. Everything is great again. Sacrifice a the goat. The world is perfect. And then the sun goes down again. It's like what's going on? The Sacrifice world? another goat. Yeah, it was crazy. I mean, what's, what, what's interesting with, with the stock market stuff, though, is that people, people do have these same reactions. Like, oh, my God, something terrible is happening to the American economy. Uh, like, Arthur, you were saying, the stock market has been pretty divorced from what's going on with ordinary people's lives for a long time. It's been way up, and the economy has been pretty shitty since, since 2008. Through 2009, yeah. the stock market's just gone up and up and up. It's right. irrelevant. Yeah. It matters if you're about to retire and you're looking at your portfolio – but in the long run, if you have, even if you're a regular person who has stock, the daily ups and downs are just don't matter. They don't it's matter. A good question: What is a no- what is a normal person really supposed to do the day the stock market's having a mild sell-off as as Monday was? It's capital it, worship. It, it, There's this unhealthy obsession with shareholder value, which is actually you know shareholders for the most part are wealthy people. It's not right. Main Street America. It's Wall Street, yeah, obviously. But it, I think it's treated by the news collectively like something that's more significant to the like psyche of um, the American people than it really is. Yeah, there was a really good report in the Washington Post a couple of years ago, which was looking at who who makes capital gains. You know, capital gains is the profit you get from either owning stocks or bonds, and also real estate. But you know, fancy rich people assets. Fifty percent of those gains don't go to the one percent; they go to the top one tenth of one percent. So we're really talking about. I mean, I think only a third of uh, of of all. Uh, all, all people in the United States even have a 401k account where they would have stock. So it, it's 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 a thing that matters to rich people. And over time, those people are going to get richer because you know Thomas Piketty has shown in his book that if you just <laughs> stay in the stock market long enough, your capital is going to grow faster than the wages of everybody else. Right. So. Uh, I keep saying when everyone's panicking, I was like, wait, aren't you guys all conservatively invested in index funds? Then what are you worried about? Don't worry about it. Just shut <laughs> shut up and chill. Shut up and chill. You're fine. And so this think about the, the people who can't be conservatively invested in index funds. There are a lot of them. They're the ones that like live on the needle's edge every every day. But you're fine. And you're what fine. we're saying would apply to you know several weeks worth of bad stock market. But this was something that happened for half a day. Right. Yeah. And it was a story all week. And the, the big story is that the global economy really is kind of unstable. The American economy isn't is isn't great. The recovery has been pretty weak and sluggish in yeah. a lot of the areas. Is where the recovery looks good 
are these sort of these sort of paper arenas like the stock market. Where, oh, we've got all this magic capital that came in since 2009. Uh, that that means things are, are good, but wages are still kind of crappy. Unemployment rate's still higher than it needs to be. And China's economy, I mean, which I think is the immediate cause to the extent that we can we can diagnose a cause for all the volatility. You know, China's economy is kind of built on you know dreams and unicorns too. And when people right. realize that their dreams and unicorns underneath all of this stuff, they're like, oh crap. What am I going to do? It's really hard to actually explain just how ephemeral, like when you get into the stock market talking about it, how like you're really just talking about a collective unconscious uh, attitude toward an ephemeral concept of money. Like if you could imagine like waking up tomorrow with the just like weird feeling that guacamole sucked and like everyone in your neighborhood in your state <laughs> woke up tomorrow and was like guacamole is bad for you, like what it would do to the world just to have that little susurration. It would be like a real thing that would happen, but it's also for like no fucking reason. Like it's, everyone it's, woke up and decided was, X was the case. It's crazy. Yeah, and it's your, it's your attitude about guacamole and also what you imagine <laughs> other people think about guacamole. <laughs> it's a psychodrama. It is, basically. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. All right, welcome back. And joining us now, we have Senator Chris Murphy. Senator, thank you for joining us today. Um, and I wish that I had, you know, obviously a, a, a happier occasion to bring you on, bring you on the podcast. But obviously, we had a quite rancid story in the news yesterday. Um, gunman, uh, another mass shooting. This time, it had come some seriously gross overtones. Gunman filmed himself and put it out on social media. I think it was one of the more disturbing events I've ever lived through vicariously. Um, Washington Post uh, has uh, put out an article yesterday uh, that there have been 247 mass shooting incidents in the United States this year, which is kind of remarkable because there have only been 238 days this year. So uh, with every sunrise, we get a mass shooting. Uh, How do you you react to this at this point? So... I mean, I really believe that Congress's silence in the face of this rash of mass shootings has become complicity. Uh, I really do believe that people um, take cues from the highest levels of government, uh, the highest levels of public service, uh, and we are essentially sending a message of quiet endorsement. 
of these murders. And it's not just the mass murders, because those have gotten the news stories, but um, this has been another terrible summer um, in places like Chicago, in my state, in Hartford, Connecticut, uh, where dozens of people are dying without the big national headlines from urban gun violence. Um, and we're the only country in the world that looks at this rate of slaughter, um, which is unprecedented amongst industrialized first world countries, and throws our hands up and says we can't do anything. And so I just, uh, I've never been more offended by anything in my life than the uh, absolute, utter um, inability of Congress to even have a debate about how we might be able to do things differently. But I think it starts with gun laws, but... Well, so, so Senator, what, what are those laws? I mean, when, when you look at, uh, I mean, each case is obviously different, but the case yesterday, it appears that the guy, you know, he didn't have some, you know, fancy, crazy AR-15, you know, cartoon weapon. Um, he, it looks like he bought it legally. What, what can you do to prevent that kind of, of violence legislatively? Well, I mean, let, let's start with what the research shows us very clearly, which is that in countries and in communities that have more guns and more weapons, there is more gun violence. So in a country that hands out weapons like candy, we shouldn't be surprised that there are so many murders at the hands of guns. And so let's just be a little bit more careful about um, how many weapons are out on the street. Let's have, uh, let's have states pass permit-to-carry laws to allow law enforcement to have a little bit more discretion in terms of who gets weapons. Let's say that maybe it's not okay for a place like Walmart to sell uh, assault weapons. Glad that they finally decided to stop doing that, but the idea that fairly untrained people should be handing out assault weapons to anybody that comes in without a background check probably doesn't make sense either. So, I mean, I'd start with the premise that maybe we should be a little bit more discriminant about who gets weapons with better background checks, with better licensing laws. Um, and that we should be a little bit more discriminant about who sells weapons. I can go into a whole litany of other things, but let's just accept that this fallacy that the NRA suggests, more guns with the good guys will stop the bad guys with the guns, actually doesn't work. So, I mean, what about handguns? I mean, I live in the District of Columbia. It used to be illegal to own a handgun here, but courts have overturned that. I mean, a lot of this violence is just straightforwardly committed with, uh, with a simple handgun, whether it's a mass shooting or a domestic violence issue. I mean, should, should people be allowed to carry handguns? People should be allowed to carry handguns, but first let's admit that a lot of, them, uh, a lot of those people are getting them without a background check because of the degree of sales that happen online and through gun shows. And then the number of weapons that get out on the street because they were bought at online and at gun shows. So let's have tougher gun trafficking laws and let's close background checks and folks. And then let's have permanent carry laws. So let's actually make someone uh, in law enforcement uh, take a look at the individual who's purchasing the gun to make sure that they um, are safe to carry it. So, no, I, I, uh, I think that people should be able to buy and, and, uh, and obtain and own handgun, but we should just be a little bit more careful about who gets So you asked, uh, after the, the Charleston shooting, um, you and uh, and your colleague from Connecticut, Senator Blumenthal, asked uh, President Obama to issue an executive order uh, that would close a, a background check loophole that had allowed Dylan Roof um, to, to actually buy a gun. Uh, have you heard back from the president about that? Uh, no, and I think it's a complicated question of whether the president can do it. We've asked him to. Uh, but we admit that it's much easier um, and, and clears up any muddle around the statute if Congress actually does it. What 
because you know what what the issue here is is that uh, if a if a retailer wants to, if they don't hear back from the background check system in three days, they can sell a gun. That's what happened in the South Carolina shooting. Um, so what we're saying is that retailers can make the decision themselves. Uh, I mean, why is a, a big national company like Cabela's or Bass Pro Shops, why on earth are they selling guns to people who haven't passed the background check? It would be an easy thing for retailers just to say, no background check, no gun. Um, that's what Walmart actually does. Uh, and other retailers could do it, too. So I'd like to pass that law. I think the president needs to take some time to figure out whether he can do it uh, for executive action. But the industry can self-police and just close this loophole voluntarily. You, um, you're you pretty relentless on this issue. You talk about it almost on a daily basis. Uh, and I understand you talk about this in the well of the Senate every chance you get. Uh, I'm curious, what uh, what's the and you don't have to name names, I guess. Although if you want to, I won't stop you. I love people who name names, but um, but what are your col- How do your colleagues react uh, when when you talk about this? Is there just a lot of just depraved indifference, or are there people out there who are kind of like, oh, you know, I agree with you, but you know, I'm too much of a coward to do anything about it. I mean, they probably wouldn't admit to you they're a coward, but you know what I'm talking about. Is there, are people indifferent? Are they hostile? Or are they just like, kind of like shrug? I can't, I can't help you. Yeah, I mean, I think it's important to remember that we did get 55 votes for the background check bill in the Senate. So we didn't get a filibuster-proof majority, but we got a majority. Maybe we have a few less votes today. Um, but, I, you know, I, I think that there's, a um, there's a belief that under the current Republican leadership that we're not going to be allowed to have that debate. So uh, I think a lot of folks are just uh, acceptant of the status quo given the reticence of McConnell and Boehner to bring a real debate like this to the, to the House and Senate floor. But no, I have a lot of people who come up and pat me on the back, a lot of attaboys, um, uh, more from the Democratic side than the Republican side, and you know, my hope at this point is that we can just have some debate that will help. So that's why I do those people. Let's do a mental health debate at least. Sure, but do those people patting you on the back and giving you attaboys then show up and vote your way? Yeah, I wish there were more people down there on the Senate floor actually speaking about it. And um, I don't quite understand why you know I'm the only one who goes down to the floor on a consistent basis, given the fact that it's dominating the headlines. Um, so listen, let's admit that the NRA is more powerful than, than, than I certainly thought at the beginning of the San Diego debate, and that there are a lot of Democrats who believe that the NRA stamp of approval is some proxy for their conservative or moderate Democrat credentials. And um, we've, you know, we, we, we've got to deal with that, and we've got to build up a political constituency around um, anti-gun violence efforts that's just as powerful as the NRA. And, and, and maybe that, when we do it, um, will motivate folks to come down to the floor and join me. Well, people talk about this. Uh, they say, you know, if you, if you can't get Congress to change the law after after the Newtown shootings where children are, are, are slaughtered, um, then then things are really hopeless unless you change the constituency uh, or you change the representation in Congress. I mean, should should the Democratic Party be supporting candidates who uh, who, who won't vote for for tougher gun laws? Yeah, I've never been, you know, you know, one for a litmus test. This issue is as important as it gets to me. But, you know, as a party, I think if we actually want to control the Senate and the House, uh, we've got to accept the Big Ten. What we 
have to concentrate on is building up a political movement um, that supports candidates that are running with um, pro-gun reform views. And and we just didn't have that when Sandy Hook happened. And the NRA built that up over 20, 30 years, and it's going to take us maybe not that long, but it'll take us a similar amount of time. The other thing we have to remind Democrats of is that um, when you vote with the NRA, they don't care. They don't. Right? I mean, right. Mark Begich voted with the NRA. He voted against the background check bill. And they spent hundreds of thousands of dollars to defeat him in Alaska. So we also have to just remind Democrats that, you know, it's not like you're going to buy yourself any political favors by voting with the NRA. They want Republicans, period, stop. Even they don't want Democrats who are, who are with them. They just, they, they, they just want Republicans in charge of every seat. That makes a lot of sense. All right, Senator, we got to leave it there. Um, maybe the next time we have you on the podcast, we'll be talking about something a little brighter, a little happier, but thanks for coming on. Really appreciate it. Thanks for focusing on this, guys. Thanks for having me. Sure thing. All right, we'll be right back. Hey there, listener of this podcast. I've got a quick little thing I'd love to chat with you about. Are you a regular So That Happened listener? Well, let us know. Send me an electronic communication with your electronic communicating devices at so that happened at HuffingtonPost.com. Tell us what you think of the show, what we're messing up, and who you'd like to hear more from or more about. Okay, back to the program. Hey, everybody, we're back. Joining me now, very pleasure, we have... The Huffington Post immigration reporter and the internet's own Elise Foley is here. How's it going? It's going great. It's going great. It's very nice to have you back on uh, the podcast. And also joining us uh, by phone, we have Julio Ricardo Varela. He is the digital media director of NPR's Latino USA and the founder of LatinoRebels.com. Julio, thanks for joining us. Hey, it's great to be here. So, um, what a week! For the world of uh, 2016 and the Latino vote, uh, we had the Republican Party's leading candidate once again go to extravagant lengths to keep Republicans from ever winning the Latino vote. What 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 is going on in this world? <laughs> That's such a good question. I mean. 2012 was not that long ago. And do you remember, like, immediately after the election, like, the next day, you had all these Republicans coming out and being like, we, self-deportation was such a mistake for Romney to say that. And now you have people saying so much worse things. I mean, self-deportation sounds almost nice compared to the idea of deporting a bunch of, like, U.S. citizen children. It's 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 seriously crazy. They put the Republicans put out a 100-page document called the Growth and Opportunity Report, which I think we all call the RNC autopsy. And it wasn't necessarily on every single page of this document, but at least I'd say 65 pages. It was just like, and by the way, we need to win the Latino vote. Why do we keep alienating Latinos? So, Julio, why do you think the Republicans keep alienating you? Well, you know what. <laughs> Um, you, yeah, why am I alienated? Um, you personally. Uh, yeah, right. Um, but, you know, one of the things, and I know the fabulous Elise Foley would agree with me because she, she's covered many of the things that I've covered. This has kind of been percolating, right? Let's remember, um, you know, what Donald Trump has done is tapped into sort of this feeling of the country's getting invaded by a horde of Mexicans 
and we need to do something about this ASAP, you know. And remember last year in Murrieta and in other places during the Central American migrant crisis, and there was this, it was just, it was just really, really ugly. So that is the voter. And the strategy by the Trump campaign is basically saying that we're not really going to worry about the Latino vote. We rather want to pit GOP voters against Latinos, against immigrants, so that we're the ones that are telling you, hey, you lost that job, or hey, you're not making as much money, or the middle class is, is suffering. Guess who's to blame? Guess who's to blame? It's that horde of you know invading Mexicans crossing the border, and that's resonating. That's the scary thing about all this, is that that message which has been percolating for years, it's, you know, Trump has almost enabled it. You know, this This is a really, this is a question I've always kind of wanted to ask, and I want to get you guys' opinion on it. When we talk about the Latino vote writ large, we're also talking about American citizens and legal immigrants. So what is it about this community that when you when you call out one section of them, everyone sort of sees themselves as part of that criticism. You know, that's always fascinating me because white people are really good at just giving other white people the Heisman when they, you know, like <laughs> it's, 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 uh, it, it would be no big deal for me to be like, yeah, yeah, fuck those white people. But it seems to me that like one kind of like, if, if you wound one part of the Latino community, everyone sort of is wounded by it. I mean, I, I'm not a Latina, so I, I can't speak to it necessarily on a personal you're adopted, level. Please, you're an adopted Latina. <laughs> <laughs> I appreciate that. But there's been polling that shows that within the Latino community and with Latino voters, they're much more likely to know somebody who's undocumented than a, you know your average white person would be. So that means that when people say this stuff, they are talking about maybe your neighbor or someone you know, somebody in your family, and it's just a lot more personal. I think the other thing is that the tone of it um, and the rhetoric is often not just anti-undocumented immigrant, but kind of anti-immigrant in general. People coming to take our jobs, they're not just talking about undocumented people. They're talking about legal immigrants as well. And there are all these instances of yelling, go back to Mexico at people who are U.S. citizens, whether they were born here or not. So I think it just becomes this much, much broader thing that's more personal than, you know, just talking about undocumented people. Right. It's, it's one of the things is this notion of foreignness. And I think it's not only about the personal. I mean, you can look at the stats. You can look at Pew saying that, you know, people do have connections. But it, it goes beyond that. And I agree with Elise in, the, in this capacity in the sense that there's this there's this growing fear of, you know, I call it fear of a, bl- a brown planet to sort of like paraphrase um, one of my favorite public enemy albums, because I always do that. Um, it's this sense that anyone from, like this foreignness, this changing of America, this browning of America, and this, this, you know, the fact that when you say that the United States will be the second largest Spanish speaking country in the world by 2050, like that freaks people out. It because it, it's you know history has shown that America has changed and you know we've survived and the United States is now going into a, a the next phase that is more Latin American that is going to be more multicultural that's going to be more diverse and there's this clinging there's just this sort of like you know bizarre um, irony that you know 
the previous immigrants are now, you know, casting dispersions on the new immigrants. Now, I am Puerto Rican, right? And people always say, well, you don't, you shouldn't care about immigration. You're a U.S. citizen. You were, you guys are born there. And I'm like, yeah, but it's almost like by luck. We got invaded by the United States in 1898. Next thing you know, like, they needed us in World War One, and we became U.S. citizens. You know, so <laughs> and, and and you look at the advocates of immigration, and you see people like Luis Gutierrez, uh, who who's Puerto Rican, who has a Mexican co- constituency in Chicago, and the reality is, it's like there's this common bond, whether it's cultural, whether it's linguistic, whether it's a shared history, and the Latino community in the United States is trying to figure that out now, and that's where the Ramos things comes in because. There's not a lot of voices out there that are that are saying to Trump or someone of the stature of Jorge Ramos saying, hey, I don't agree with you or I, I want to challenge you. I want to talk a bit about the, the whole Jorge Ramos incident because I watched it happen on TV and it was like one of those things that happens when you're, when you're watching it. It's so absurd and controversial and weird that it's almost like the world starts to tilt on its axis. I hadn't felt about seeing something on TV like Donald Trump throwing Jorge Ramos, who's like Univision superstar. He's like a journalist slash matinee idol, practically. One of the most famous journalists in the world, certainly the most famous Latino journalist in America. To me, it was like watching Mike Tyson bite that dude's ear. (laughs) Like, I was just like, wait, what is happening? Am am I I in a nightmare? Wow, it's like public enemy, Mike Tyson. I mean, I love this show already. (laughs) Tell your friends. Um, (laughs) So what, what on earth was Donald Trump thinking in that moment? The thing is, I don't know, but... I think he was annoyed and he doesn't care. But I just don't know that it's going to hurt him any more than he's already been hurt with Latino voters. I mean, he clearly doesn't care. My favorite thing about it was just him, you know, going on and on about how he was just being a protector of decorum and politeness, as if Donald Trump doesn't love to scream at people and say things that aren't PC. But (laughs) yeah, I mean, it's not—I just wonder whether it would even hurt him. He's so bad off with Latinos anyway. Right. As a journalist, I mean, one of the things, you know, obviously— we shared it on Tino USA. My my boss, Maria Hosa, you know, she was she's been talking about it and we've been talking about it internally. But you know, so we get we've gotten all the tweets to us saying, Well, you know, he broke the rules or, you know, he's an activist journalist or but if you break down that tape before the ear bite uh, <laughs> <laughs> Um, he was, you know, they, they said that he spoke out of turn, but like, you know, I watched the tape 10 times or 15 times and he was actually asking the question and Trump was completely like, you're not even going there, buddy. I mean, and if you've been to a press conference, people talk out of turn all the time. It's a lot of times the only way to get your question in. This is clearly now a division of, you know, you're either with Trump or you're with Ramos. And I hate to like simplify it, but, but even someone like Jorge Ramos, who is, again, an amazing Latino journalist. He's, you know, the most recognizable cover of time. But he's, you know, he's, he's like any other journalist. Not everyone thinks that Jorge Ramos is this amazing Mexican journalist. But this, this conference has sort of, he's become sort of the voice to stand up to Donald Trump. What really sort of put the, you know, sealed the deal with a lot of people wasn't actually him getting kicked out. It was that Trump supporter outside in the hall 
telling him to go back to his country. Like, that's the one where I have Latino Republican friends who are like, you know what? I don't agree with Ramos. I don't, I, he's not my favorite journalist, but come on. It was more that, that video where the guy said, go back to your country. And when he said, when he said, you know what? This is my country. The guy backed off and he's like, well, 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 that's what I mean. It's like this fear of change of what are you losing? What are you really losing? And, you know, Jose, Jose diaz Ballard, who's the Telemundo anchor and, and um, is on MSNBC, he said it best on Meet the Press, and he goes, the world, it's already changed, guys. We keep reading about how establishment Republicans are horrified by what Donald Trump is doing uh, because uh, they they don't necessarily believe he'll be the nominee, but they believe that like every time he opens his mouth, he does something to undermine the person who will be the eventual nominee. I wanted to ask you guys, what do you think about that? Is there any truth to that? I mean, I think it's going to last to a certain degree. The fact that he's out there saying certain things means that other Republicans get asked things that maybe they wouldn't otherwise be asked. Maybe that's their position, but they wouldn't be out there talking about it, and that would hurt them. There was this Gallup poll that came out this week, their their general tracking, that found that Jeb Bush still had a net favorable with Latinos. So that polling, you know, kind of indicates that just because Trump is out there saying bad things doesn't mean that it's reflecting on every single Republican candidate. But I I mean, the ads are so easy there to put up that, you know, this is who this party is, even if it's not the nominee. Right. I mean, I think that I think the damage has been done. I think when Elise mentioned, you know, self-deportation sounds a lot more favorable. And that 27 percent number that Mitt Romney got in 2012, which was which was which led to the memo, you know, where you put Latino every other page for the RNC. Um, I think right now the Republican Party, if they get 27 percent of the vote in of the Latino vote in 2016, that's going to be a victory. <laughs> wow! Right now, but I do think there's going to be a lot of damage. Um, some, but here's the thing: uh, Jeb Bush has had to play the Trump you know, has had to play in Trump's world the last couple of weeks with the anchor baby comment and then comparing it to the Asians. Oh, yeah, that was crazy. You know, and it's like, it's like you're not even in doing it right. I mean, if I was running Bush's <laughs> campaign right now, I'd be like, you know, you might have to get down to Trump's level and say, like, you know what, buddy? Suck it. I'm a better candidate. and Let's, let's get it on. You're a loser, too. And I do think that that Republican candidate who, who says, you know what, I'm done because this guy's putting too much damage and he doesn't represent what what Republicans represent. And there's a lot of Republicans I know who are just appalled and and just say, like, I'm done. I'm going to fight this guy, and it's over. And Bush, I mean, Bush is the guy. And, and the other one is, is Rubio. I mean, <laughs> the guy sounded really sensible on, at the debate, like, three, 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 four weeks ago when it came to immigration. And, and he's just disappeared. So, yeah. It's fascinating. Yeah. Someone's got to show up and be the alpha, I guess. All right. All right. Thank you so much, Julio, for joining us. Before you go, uh, tell, tell everyone your Twitter handle. Oh, my Twitter handle is, I can't change it. It's Julito77, J-U-L-I-T-O-77, the number 777. And Elise, you are at? At Elise Foley. All right. Pretty easy. <laughs> Thanks to both of you, and we will be right back.
And we're back. Uh, in keeping with just what a terrible news week this is, we have something really terrible to talk about today, and it is uh, the destruction of ancient ruins in a really cool place called Palmyra by ISIS, who suck. Joining me here to talk about it are two wonderful people, Ali Watkins. Thanks for having me. And Akbar Ahmed. Akbar. Thanks for having us. Akbar, have you been on before? I have been on once. So yeah. Okay, so this is your, the op- not your maiden voyage. On the podcast. Um, so, Akbar, let's start with you, Akbar. I mean, so, what, um, what, what is the new terrible thing that ISIS, we learned, has done? Sure. So, ISIS went into Palmyra and the adjoining town of Tadmur about six or seven weeks ago. And the big thing they did this week is that they destroyed the Temple of Baal Shanin. That's a temple that is 2,000 years old. It was the Phoenician temple uh, to the god of storms and rain. And it's been around for a long time, a lot longer than ISIS. The importance of this is that Palmyra is a city, right? It's not just one or two monuments. This is one of the biggest things. There, were, there are four or five parts of Palmyra that people say are the key to mm-hmm. it. And this is one of the things they did. Uh, they released a video of it on Tuesday. And people have been talking about it. It's a little terrifying because the question is, where do they go from here? This comes on the heels of their killing the director of antiquities of Palmyra last week. Yeah, they didn't was... think that was enough. Khalid al-Assad, who is an old guy, too. He's in, like, his 80s. It's like, 82 or 83. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a lot of theories about why they would do this after they killed Assad. Um, one of them is ISIS craves attention, right? They want people to see what they're doing and think, oh, my God, you are so terrible, I'm terrified. And the media did a pretty smart thing when they were covering Assad's murder. They didn't make it about, oh, this is so tragic. They made the story of heroism. Like, mm-hmm. this director of antiquities stayed in Palmyra, refused to take ISIS to the ruins. And he and, refused to leave. He, right. I mean, he was offered the opportunity to leave, and he refused. So, so it wasn't the story of, like, ISIS is sowing despair. It was a story of kind of human survival and resistance to ISIS. And a lot of the stuff in Palmyra has been has been smuggled out, essentially. So there, are, there are a lot of antiquities that made yeah. it to other places, that, you know, like the, I think the British Museum is trying to deal with it at different places. Other places in Syria, in Damascus, they're, try, they're, they're trying to deal with them. They're in secret locations. Uh, so it's not like the whole thing has been gone. But uh, like you were saying, Akbar, I mean, Palmyra is such an interesting place. It's such an interesting historical place. It's, it's sort of halfway between the Mediterranean and the Euphrates River. So for shipping in the ancient world, you kind of have to go through Palmyra if you want to take a land route to, to the, a direct land route to the Euphrates. So all of these different interesting empires have been there. Right. Um, I, I was really struck, you know, the, the temple, you know, in, in a lot of Greek writing, that, that god, uh, Baal Shanin, is sometimes identified with, with Zeus in, in some, some types of writing. It shows the this, this sort of interesting pluralism that existed in the ancient world. Um, and, and I can see why that would be something that Isis would find repugnant. Um, but, but also something that, that, you know, it's... I was almost more upset by the, by the destruction of the temple than I have been by the videos of people getting their heads cut off. Uh, I mean... I, Ali, am I a, a monster for for feeling that way? <laughs> no, I think that they're they're two different, very different kind of travesties that kind of hit at different, pull at different strings of humanity. Um, as far as what happens, I mean, you have this terrible, you see these terrible things being done to fellow human beings, but the actual attempts to erase history, you know, the, the, mm-hmm. this complete inability to accept any other existence besides. The, the ISIS manifesto, essentially, is th- this need to erase everything out. That, I think, it really hits at a, I, I mean, a, a, a innate fear of every human, of having your entire history erased, you know? Obviously, none of us were worshiping in that temple, but it's, it 
such a... And it's a living ruin. Yeah. I think that's the really important part of it. In terms of, I had a friend who was there a few years ago before the Syrian Civil War broke out. And I asked him last night about what were your memories, what were your recollections? And he said, obviously, the ruins are so imposing, they're incredible, you think about history. But you also think about the fact that there are Syrians living adjoining these ruins. Like, this was not a pluralistic society 2,000 years ago. This was a pluralistic society last year, right? right? Syria is a plural country. Syria has Christians, Assyrians, Kurds, lots of people who were living together fine before ISIS went in. And I think on this question of, like, are you a monster? You may be a monster for other reasons. Um, <laughs> however, on this count, I don't think you're necessarily a monster. There was a beautiful piece in The Guardian about why should we care about this, right? In a world where ISIS kills people in Iraq, kills people in Syria every day. And we care about this because it's, it's saying that like humanity is more than biological creatures, right? It's not mm-hmm. just like lives you kill. It's also what humanity constructs and lives on. And like this attacks a part of our lives, a part of our culture that that exists beyond beyond just beings. Right, that the culture and, and identity are things that exist independently of these, these independent right. individual units that, that walk around. You have to live in a sort of cultural soup to be an individual even. Mm-hmm. And, and to see not only the culture, like history, die out, but have it be erased and or, or attempted the, to be erased. Yeah, the, the heaviness of this is just exacerbated I think from from a Western perspective, particularly from an American perspective, of that the concept of something being from the first century is something almost completely lost on us. You know, like history to us is 300 years and that's all right. that shit, you know. <laughs> right. But you look at Palmyra and it's just this, you realize what it means and what it represents and the developments that have happened and these things are still standing. So I, you know, I really think it just, it hits at different parts of the human condition. And so so in, in the spirit of sticking it to ISIS, I want to encourage all of our listeners to go out and study. There's just one figure from Palmyrian history, Palmyran history, uh, who is, uh, yeah, I think she's the most famous one. She's so cool. I'm always, I'm always like kind of surprised that um, that Shakespeare never did a, a Zenobia like tragedy. It's such an awesome, awesome character. You should check her out. She she led a revolt against the Roman Empire in the third century. Um, and you, people forget the Roman Empire. Like the richest parts of the Roman Empire were like Syria, Egypt, Mesopotamia. Like the West was not very wealthy. Um, she she led a revolt that was successful. She conquered the the province of Egypt, which was a Roman province, and then in the end ends up being sort of uh, defeated and taken to Rome in chains. Uh, it's an amazing story. She's a really in- interesting figure. People should, should check her out. Don't let ISIS win. Um, before we go, Ali, what what is the United States doing right now to make sure that ISIS doesn't win? How is that going? Um. <laughs> well, there's a, there was a piece yesterday which I think is. The U.S. doesn't know because yeah. there, there are these really interesting revelations about intelligence analysts being forced to essentially lie about how well the fight is going. Mm-hmm. And, and I think there's, I mean, it's no secret that the strategy to combat ISIS has been very piecemeal over the last, we've been a year into this now, right. roughly a year. And the U.S. is focused is Iraq, not Syria. Mm-hmm. I would say on the Syria piece, though, which I, what I think is really important for people to remember about this is that the Assad regime, the dictator who rules Syria, have been the folks who are making the most noise about Palmyra. In their view, this is how they say, we are not ISIS, we are the people who will protect Palmyra, protect Syria's history. Mm -hmm. Don't believe that. It's a lie. The Assad regime has been bombing the citadel of Aleppo, they have bombed the suburbs of Damascus, they don't care about Syrian history. And I think that is like something we need to remember with the ISIS fight. These people are terrible, but 
the American involvement there needs to be smart about who it works with if it cares about things like Palmyra. All right, so we got to wrap. Uh, thanks for joining us, Akbar. Uh, where can people find you on the Twitters? Uh, Akbar S. Emmett. Don't look up other Akbar Emmett because he is not me. I'm me. I'm Akbar Shahid Emmett. With an S in there. With an S in there. And Allie? Uh, Allie Watkins, just at Allie Watkins. All right, great. Thanks for listening. Thank you. I guess thank you guys for joining. We'll thank the <laughs> listeners for listening at the end of the podcast, which maybe this is, maybe it's not. We'll find out. (laughs) (laughs) Answer the force of editing. We are back. Amazing. Let the force be with us. That was pretty amazing. Um, (laughs) So sort of like this is sort of, I guess, a 2016 story, but we're going to get a little nostalgic. Okay. Uh, This week it was reported Joe Biden, vice president, Uncle Joe, thinking about maybe running for president and as part of, I guess, now the new ritual of Democrats running for president, he made a sort of like pilgrimage <laughs> to meet with Senator Elizabeth Warren. What they spoke about, we do not know because we were not privy to those things. If anyone wants to leak what the fuck they talked about, of course, we'll take it. Yeah. Email. So that happened at HuffingtonPost.com. Leak yep. us things. Just leak us all your shit. Do it today. Um, but uh, one of the things that our, our, our wonderful producer, Adriana Ucero, caught during the midweek was uh, a little bit of Joe Biden and Elizabeth Warren's uh, past history. We go back to 2005, set the stage. 2005, remember, this is prior to big economic meltdown. And there's a debate in Congress over whether or not to uh, pass a bankruptcy law that would, in the eyes of the people promoting this, reform bankruptcy law. Yeah, and that, that law basically had the effect of preventing people from accessing bankruptcy. Well, it's a law that uh, Republicans and, and some Democrats in Congress have been pushing for for almost 10 years by that time. Yeah. And the George W. This is George W. Bush, and his administration was pushing for it, and they were everyone agreed that bankruptcy was being abused. You Too know, many people, people were filing. People were incurring credit card debt they couldn't pay and then just getting out of uh paying their debt by going into bankruptcy. But there was this one dissenting voice in the in the sort of establishment bankruptcy culture, and it was this Harvard professor named Elizabeth Warren, who at that point, nobody in the political universe had really had really thought about very much. At this point, she, she was probably just writing the wave of her personal finance book and her and her professorship. Yeah, she was a, she was just a, she was just an academic who had been studying bankruptcy and found surprisingly that actually the people who who file for bankruptcy aren't all these deadbeats who are just buying like seven gold-plated TVs and stuff. They're people who have a medical emergency that costs a lot of money, they're people who get divorced, uh, or they're people who lose a job. I mean, that's what that was basically why people were filing but for bankruptcy. But especially the medical debt, which I think was uh, a factor in a majority of bankruptcy cases. Yeah, let's also remember this is the time prior to uh, Obamacare. We're going to play a clip. Yeah, we're going to play a little bit of a clip. Joe Joe Biden, the senator from Delaware, facing off against the expert witness on, on this committee, Elizabeth Warren. It's the question of what role bankruptcy plays. That's not my question. I'd like you to answer my question. What role is there under what you would consider to be an appropriate form of government where we legislate, do we say that people who in good faith provide a service for an individual, that the individual is later later unable to meet because of a legitimately horrific and extraordinary dilemma that was an act of God, 
that who should be responsible for taking them out from under? Should it be the automobile company who lent the money to purchase a car? The the uh, uh, the drugstore that lent the money that, that 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 provided a service and in effect lent the money because there's a bill um, for the the drug bill the utility company uh, the uh, the guy who has the lawn service company I mean whose responsibility is it because that's really the question Senator I think you're exactly right and that is that we need fewer families to need to turn to the bankruptcy system. We have a broken health care finance system in the United States. Right. And all I can do is point out that it is bankrupting families. Absolutely right. Until we fix the broken health care finance system, right. those families have to turn somewhere. And that means now they turn as a last-ditch effort to the bankruptcy right. court. And that means they turn to asking the people that they borrowed money from to pay for their health care cost, right? Senator, the cost... Isn't that literally correct? It is literally correct Thank that you. the cost of a broken health care system are born throughout the economy. We are asking, and I, don't, I, I may be ready to do this, we're going to ask the gas company, the drugstore, the automobile dealer to pay for the broken system. Instead of having the nerve to come and say it's a moral obligation of a nation to pay for that broken system, why should it be someone who sits there living in a $2 million home for whom it lent no money to that person, why do they not have an obligation to pay for that instead of the guy who owns the drugstore at the corner pay for that? That's my only point. And I, it may make sense, and I might add for the record, I'd like to put in the record a Forbes article, uh, uh, and I'd like to ask you whether it's an accurate quote, Professor. You, they, they quote you in an article entitled, Everybody Knows It's Credit, um, in Forbes uh, magazine saying, quote, the lobbyists are going to be the only ones who really profit, scoffs Elizabeth Warren, Harvard Law Professor. I think you're dead right, because it points out in here, as you point out, the one, we may have to find new boogeymen. The one people who aren't going to benefit out of this are the credit card companies, as you point out in here. I, 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 I submit this to the, uh, uh, for the record. Uh, but I, I just think we should be honest about this thing. And, you know, we're, you know, make, making a gas company, which I don't like the gas company. Uh, I don't like many companies. But anyway, um, uh, pay is, uh, you know, we just ought to acknowledge what we're doing here when we make these kind of assertions. Thank you, Senator Biden. Can, can uh, Professor Warren just respond to the quote? I think the senator makes an entirely fair point about externalizing the cost, and I would add only one caveat to it. Not only does this bill treat all debtors alike, in many ways it treats all creditors alike, the gas company doesn't have the capacity to change its pricing to reflect these risks or has very limited capacity. But I remind you of what the credit card companies have sure. already. Sure. Should it? That implies they should. No. What should I'm the gas company be required to change the prices to reflect these? Oh, of course they Oh, okay. Well, the way you stated it, you said they don't have the capacity. The implication is maybe they should have that. No, so my point is the losses will go to some creditors who cannot reflect this in their prices. 
But look at the cases, the cases cited in my testimony, where credit card companies, I have a specific case in Ray McCarthy, but nothing unusual about it. A woman who borrowed $2,200, the credit, she paid back $2,100 over the two years preceding bankruptcy. And at the end of that period of time, she was told she still owed $2,600. With fees and interest, I submit, Senator, that there are many in the credit industry right now who are getting their bankruptcies prepaid. That is, they have squeezed enough out of these families in interest and fees and payments that never Maybe we should take talk down. about usury rates then. Maybe that's what Senator, we should be talking about, not bankruptcy. I'll be the first. Invite no, I, I know you will, but let's call a spade a spade. Your problem with the credit card companies is usury rates in your position. It's not about the bankruptcy bill. But, Senator, if you're not going to fix that problem, you can't take away the last shred of protection for I these got families. It. Okay. You're very good, Professor. <laughs> that is so intense. I hear that, and uh, and it's it's amazing that people are talking about this Joe Biden candidacy, and they're like, Joe Biden's going to be the guy who's going to talk like honestly about income inequality, unlike that phony Hillary Clinton who's got all that money and the Clinton Foundation stuff. And I'm like, it's hard for me to remember to think of that because when I like when I was a banking reporter before I worked for Huffington Post, right. he was the senator. He was like the, the joke about him was that he was Joe Biden was the senator from MBNA, which right. was a credit card company. Because now it's just part of Bank of America. Many credit card companies were and and still are headquartered in the state of Delaware because right. of the way its its taxes work and all that. I have to say that it is so extraordinary to me to listen to that because I, when I, when I when I heard the whole clip and we'll put the whole clip hopefully in our in our in our in our uh, article somehow. Um, when we put when I listen to the whole clip, at first I I listen to Joe Biden and, and Elizabeth Warren go back and forth. I don't see why they're arguing. They both seem to be uh, talking about the same thing, but as it sort of reveals itself, Joe Biden has this is taking this luxury luxury of being able to talk about bankruptcy in abstract terms. He brings Warren on because he wants to know, philosophically speaking, who should bear the responsibility. Uh, when when someone fails in this capacity and files bankruptcy, right. should it be the government? Should it be a creditor? Who should who should who should play this off? And what Warren wants to talk about is the practical aspect of it, which is that we have a healthcare system at the time, circa 2005. We have a healthcare system where a lot of people are incurring bankruptcy just as a product of them getting sick, and 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 not being able to afford to pay it and then losing everything and needing this harbor to even get back on their feet financially after the fact, and. And and what what Biden wants to talk about? There's a point where he says, you know, I, you're concerned with the usury rates on credit cards right. and things like that. And she's like, of course I'm concerned about that. But really, what I'm concerned about is that before we fix these things, you need to make sure that there is that cushion, that harbor. Well, here's here's what Joe Biden is doing in this clip. Elizabeth Warren has been out there making a straightforward argument that the bankruptcy reform that they've proposed and are about to pass is a straightforward giveaway to credit card companies and banks. And she's also noted that these bankruptcy uh, users aren't people who've just bought a bunch of TVs. They have medical debt. So what Joe Biden's saying is, and he's doing it in as confusing a way as possible because he needs to sow confusion right now. 
Yeah, I mean, basically, Biden is trying to misdirect the audience. He's trying to tell people, look, look, Elizabeth Warren is talking about a different problem, and I'm trying to talk about this other thing that is important, when actually what, what she's saying is, yes, so since you're not going to fix all these other things, which you have just acknowledged you're not going to fix, if you're going to push somebody out of a window with medical debt, it doesn't make sense to pull the mattress out from under the building with the, with, with the bankruptcy code, with this, with this bill, which is what they're doing. All right, but uh, let's, let, let me ask you this. Okay, this list remembers 2005. This is... This is three years before Bear Stearns collapses, three years before Lehman Brothers collapses. And this is a time when everyone kind of thought that the good times may sometimes take a little bit of a stagger, but they really weren't going to end. The financial services sector thought they had slain the beast of risk and it was never, <laughs> they were never going to worry about risk ever again. We had credit default swaps we to solve default, all of our problems. Exactly. Like there were dilapidated houses in my own city that were selling for seven figures. And everyone thought, oh, that I'm sure that makes sense to somebody. So let's not question it. Let's be clear. Not everyone thought that, but that was the public face. That, yeah, was, like, yeah, yeah. Since that was literally 10 years ago. Surely, uh, maybe the, 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 what the Democrats have to prove is who's learned the most in 10 years about the way the world really works. You know, Joe Biden was off on some kind of like, sort of like, you know, really undergraduate economics 101 jag with Elizabeth Warren and ended up getting schooled not just by her, but by reality down the line. So now, who do you think, do you think Joe Biden's learned nothing? I mean, the, the question is whether he can, he can separate his politics from, the politics of the country from the politics of Delaware. So when, when you represent Delaware, these guys, these, the people who represent that state are always shilling for not just credit card companies, but all, who, who now are basically the biggest banks in the country. There, there was a t- it's funny, this, this fantasy world 10 years ago when there were like these credit card companies and they weren't the same thing as too big to fail banks. They were independent yeah. groups. And now they're all just that was different. Banks. Yeah. Um, so there's, that, there's a sense in which the world has gotten worse. I'm sure that Joe Biden still thinks that the, Delaware is a place where like blue collar workers go to work at DuPont, blah, blah, blah. But, well, he, well, there, I mean, the, these companies really are having huge offices in Wilmington and you can see you know, these gleaming towers. And so the, the argument is simple. I think if you're, if you're forced to make it and you're a guy like Joe Biden, I was defending jobs in my state, but it's, it's kind of a wonky issue, but that, I mean, that's what senators historically have done. It's a totally parochial interest. Yep. You got me that time. So, so he may be able to separate that out as, as a, and you know, in the, in the white house, I think he's he, you know, in the, the executive branch, like some of his economic advisors have been the most progressive members of the Obama economic team who subsequently got in, ignored. But, but like what, you know, Arthur, you, you cover like a lot of poverty stuff for us. I mean, you, you're kind of our sadness correspondent. I mean, what, what, what were the effects of this bankruptcy bill when it passed? Like what oh, yeah. happened? Well, it was, it was straight, it was straight up supposed to, they presumed People were abusing bankruptcy, so they wanted fewer people to do it. It had been about a million and a half bankruptcy cases a year, and then after the the law passed, that cratered to less than a million, about 600,000 in in the first year afterward. And the argument was, well, we'll have fewer bankruptcy, but because because the credit cards will be saving money, they will pass on that savings to consumers in the form of lower fees, lower interest rates. And it just didn't happen. <laughs> and there, was not, there wasn't really a good reason to believe that that would happen because there isn't a tremendous amount of competition in that industry, and there's been even less since then. Uh, but studies have been done, and you can see that interest rates continue to rise, fees continue to rise, and the, the savings for consumers turn out to be mythical, uh, but the restriction on bankruptcy and all the different ways that it was made less generous 
uh, you know, those those worked. I want to explain to people who, who don't maybe follow this stuff so closely what bankruptcy actually does. I mean, it just seems like it's it's like the end of the world for a lot of people. It's like financially they were ruined. It's actually the safety net. Yeah, it, it's a way for you, if you have too much debt that you're never going to be able to repay, you can go to bankruptcy court and get that debt discharged. And there will be, you know, or, or, or if not totally discharged, you can have it reduced in certain ways. And, and there's a judge who oversees the process to make sure that certain creditors don't get don't get the short end of the stick unfairly and things like that. It's a, it's a way to start over and there are significant penalties you incur for that. Your credit is ruined. Yeah, you know, you're not for be able a to, period of yeah, time. You're not going to be able yeah. to get a house for a few years. You know, um, and so that, sure, I'm not going to get a loan. Right, but it's a but it's a way to start over, um, and it's always been part of of economic systems going back to you know the fucking third century A.D. Oh, it's not going well. No, <laughs> uh, or in this country's early history, instead of bankruptcy, we just put debtors in prison. Right. And now, uh, increasingly, we do that through things like uh, court fees and, uh, you know, you fail, like in Ferguson, Missouri, for instance, you fail to pay a fee for not mowing your lawn. You get thrown in jail. We have effectively still got bankruptcy uh, debtors, prison. debtors prisons, but uh, there was a time where they were actually called that and we just threw people who owed money straight in jail and states stopped doing that like 200 years ago. There's also this funny effect of that law that because you, you couldn't get as you, you had fewer bankruptcies, people couldn't get their, their stuff discharged. Uh, if you, it used to be if you, if you owned a house, for instance, and you, and you had equity in the house, then you know, if you got this other stuff discharged, they'd let you keep your house. You can't get mortgage debt discharged in bankruptcy. So th- that's not going to go away. But what happened is when the, when the financial crisis hit and the economy fell apart, when people couldn't discharge their debts in bankruptcy, you saw this enormous wave of foreclosures because people couldn't deal with other bills. They couldn't make their other bills lower, and that meant they couldn't pay their, make their housing payments. And that actually made the crisis even worse um, than, it, than it needed to be. And there right, was, well, let me, I'm sorry, go ahead. There was another effort to change bankruptcy law as the crisis was at its peak, which was to allow uh, home values to be reduced in bankruptcy court. It was mm-hmm. called cram down. Yeah, and this I remember is this, that. right, and this is another arena where Elizabeth Warren was saying, "Yeah, do that," and the Obama administration was like, "Eh, <laughs> they they didn't come out against it, but they they effectively." Well, they, they, they pop- effectively prevented it from happening. I mean, when, when the bailout actually happened in, in uh, 2008, before Obama was president, he went around telling Democrats, please vote for this bill. If you vote for this when I'm president, I'll, I'll do the mortgage cramdown bill to fight foreclosures. And then they did it. He became president, and he was pretty meh. On, yeah. the, uh, on the on the foreclosure stuff. So I have to ask you something, because my, part of my duty on the show is to constantly be fomenting the class war. Um, <laughs> Fight capital. Uh, <laughs> full communism. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, you, talk about, you talk about how this bankruptcy bill had an effect on people and, and that, that people were no longer able to discharge their debts. Um, I've been told that corporations are people, my friend. <laughs> <laughs> so, did the bankruptcy way we changed bankruptcy laws certainly it impacted corporations just as adversely as it did normal people? No, right? we're only talking about personal bankruptcy. Wait, what? That there what? were s- some provisions did affect small businesses, but not big ones. It actually kind of made it worse for small businesses. Yeah, it did. It did. <laughs> uh, but big businesses, I'm, I mean, this has been Donald Trump's and Newt Gingrich's way of escaping all uh, all kinds of burdensome debts. Yeah, Elizabeth Warren, in, in her testimony uh, in the 2005 case, she actually lists all these, like, Enron, WorldCom, all these people who are not affected, who, like, clearly abuse the bankruptcy process. And she's like, WTF? 
It's a, almost a clear double standard that remains. It's almost as if people who have a lot of money can pay for lobbyists to change laws in their favor through which they garner more income through which they purchase more lobbyists. I mean, the, 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 the senators who voted yes for this bill overwhelmingly had more money in contributions to their campaigns. Of course. The finance industry. So there's a nice correlation there. Oh, well. So and just just to be clear, uh, so we're not too hard on Joe Biden here. Uh, Hillary Clinton voted for versions of this bill uh, in the past. Uh, everybody did. Yeah, it, was everybody. A seven, it was 75 yay votes. Barack Obama was a no. Yep. Uh, but this was very mainstream. How did Bernie Sanders vote on it? I'm pretty sure Bernie Sanders voted against it. And uh, Martin O'Malley was probably just like telling Baltimore police to be assholes at the time. Didn't have anything to do with this in particular. I don't know where he was in 2005. <laughs> he was filming for The Wire. Well, that was fun, guys. Hope we don't go bankrupt. <laughs> Bye. So that's what happened this week. This podcast was produced and edited by Adriano Ucero with technical direction from Brad Shannon and assistance from Christine Canetta. I'm Jason Lincolns. This week, we were joined by Connecticut Senator Chris Murphy, Latino USA Digital Media Director and founder of Latino Rebels, Julio Ricardo Varela, and Huffington Post reporters Akbar Ahmed, Zach Carter, Arthur Delaney, Elise Foley, and Ali Watkins. So That Happened is available on iTunes. Check us out in the iTunes store and look for the Huffington Post whole family of podcasts. Subscribe and tell your friends. If there's something you'd like to hear us talk about, send an email to so that happened at HuffingtonPost.com. As always, thanks for listening, and we miss you already. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com.